Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons licence. If you'd like to see or see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com or subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. Okay, so uh, I'm here at the National Library of Scotland and I'm talking to Professor Fielding of Edinburgh University. Uh, Professor Fielding is an expert in intelligence studies and literature. Uh, she talks a lot about spy novels and so on. Uh, Professor Fielding, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I suppose the first place we're going to start is that when you gave your presentation at BISA, you talked about transitions between genres, and I'm very interested in the transitions in terms of spy fiction and detective fiction, and also earlier adventure fiction in that theme like The Scarlet Pimpernel. Tell us something about the way those genres have shifted. Sure. Well, genre fiction itself kind of gets invented in the late 19th century with the collapse of what traditionally was thought of as the novel. So the novels by Dickens or George Eliot publishing three volumes. Those used to make money quite so much in the 1880s and 1890s, and that's where you get the splintering of uh, fiction into all the genres that we recognise today, science fiction, um, scientific romance as it was called, detective fiction, adventure fiction... Spy fiction starts in a, in a, on a kind of, almost on a parallel track. Uh, first of all, as you say, from adventure fiction. So one of the precursors of uh, modern kind of heroic spy novel might be Ryder Haggard in Solomon's Mines, where the lone agent goes into a difficult global situation. One of these things we see from the beginning is that spy novel is interested in the global state of affairs. Uh, has various adventures, tackles them, is very independent, kind of rugged, has to work things out for him, usually, so this states not very many female spies. Uh, at the same time, there's a, there's a, a kind of recognition of the uh, darker side of spying. So almost immediately in the early 20th century, there's another strand of fiction, which we might call kind of spy noir, uh, and I think one of the turning points, curiously in a way, is um, Rudyard Kipling's novel Kim, sort of think of as adventure fiction, and it is to a certain extent. It's also about a world that's quite difficult to read, uh, and it, it puts a, a, a strain on the interpretive ability of the hero. So Kim is constantly having to work things out, and it's in, he can be quite confused about what's going on, as well as confusing other people. This then kind of leads into uh, a very ironic, um, cynical view of the spy world in the early 20th century, most famously with um, Joseph Conrad's secret agent, uh, where the spies are absolutely useless <laughs> and uh, are very poor agents. And blow, each, blow themselves up, blow each other up by accident. They're all cynical and greedy and fat and uh, dependent on rich patrons and so on. Um, 
and that's very different from the classic adventure spy novel of the very late 19th century popular by people we've never heard of so much today like William McHugh, E. Phillips Oppenheim those are not uh, uh, well known names today but they were very patriotic uh, spy fiction which really dealt with um, you know, German armament and the idea that you know, Germans would be uh, popping across the channel a real danger to Britain oh, yeah. we, we tend to view this sort of warning about the state of our government spy yeah. fiction as a very modern idea and this becomes because we forget how popular say Riddle of the Sands was yeah. when it was first written it was huge and exciting and felt genuinely scared yeah, yeah. not so much nowadays I reread uh, Riddle of the Sands the other day <laughs> Going. But yeah, I mean, um, William McHugh, is quite a well-known story, he's also a journalist, and um, he worked for a newspaper that invited people to write in to say, you know, they'd seen a German spy or they'd seen somebody eating a sausage and he was being a German. Uh, so, you know, that, uh, that kind of popular, not exactly paranoia, but anxiety starts quite early in the history of spy fiction. Uh, something you mentioned at the beginning was the nature of the spy as a character. And something that comes up a lot in our podcast is the nature of the hero in these genre novels. And indeed, while they always have certain skills and technologies or even superpowers, usually one of their primary things is that they do what they want and have this moral righteousness to do so. And that these heroes are almost always male and are quite Randian in that sense. Um, how do you see that playing into the spy novel specifically? Well, a classic example of um, that was maybe James Bond, yeah. the sort of hyper-individual, hyper-masculinised, to the extent that in the novels he's so hyper-masculine that he kind of tips over the other edge and there becomes was, this weird masochistic figure. There was that wonderful study of the number of drinks he has yeah. in Casino Royale. Yeah, and he smokes about sort of 40 cigarettes a day, I think. He'd be dead if he was uh, a real character. Um, Casino Royale is a very strange novel, you know, deeply homoerotic and... Um, masochistic, which was brought out a little bit in the, the film when the yes. series was rebooted. I thought that was quite a good uh, representation of the novel. Um, and, and other types of character like that would be maybe uh, Richard Hannay, John Bottom's hero, although Hannay himself is um, not at all like Bond. He's, it's quite different. He has to struggle to maintain his individuality. A scene you see a lot in a, in a Bakken novel is the point at which Hane or, or one of his other heroes is almost hypnotised by the villain. So his will is, is taken over. This happens in uh, 39 Steps, uh, The Three Hostages. Um, and also... Uh, the Bond film with... Um, uh, his name, the place of villain, Spanish actor. So. Javier Bardem? Yes. Uh, Spectre. Spectre. Or is no, it Skyfall? Really Skyfall. Skyfall. Uh, one of our regular contributors, <laughs> Abby, will be terribly upset to hear us struggle to remember which Bond film is which. Well, they lost the, uh, the connection with the novel again. Yeah, so in Skyfall, there's that scene where uh, Bardem is. Um, kind of almost seducing and hypnotising uh, Bond. And that's all, again, straight out of um, a Buffen novel. That, that, that film is quite Buffenesque in the end. Um, the, the, the villain of the three hostages, Cedric Medina, is this kind of Bardem-like character. He's like, uh, I think 
it's called De Silva, isn't he, in the, in the film? Yeah. Like De Silva in the film, and he, he sort of seduces and hypnotises uh, Richard Hanno, and then the whole thing takes takes off to Scotland at the end to have a great big fight, <laughs> because the whole thing, masculinity can only be resolved through physical violence, of course. What's interesting about Bardem's character, I guess, is that he's personally compelling, mm. and yet his political or ideological motivation is just terrorist, right? It's the habit of spy fiction to, certainly with at least the modern villain, that their only objective is chaos. Uh, Critics have made the comment that effectively Skyfall is the Dark Knight rebranded, and Javier Bardem's character is just the Joker. He wants to destroy for the sake of destroying. Um, How does this lack of political motivation for villains change the genre? That's a really good question. Um... I think one way of answering it is that spy fiction puts a tremendous stress on ideology. So so that it splits, splits. On the one hand, there's the idea of the spy novel as the political thriller, where um, different political regimes come up against each other, so the classic kind of Cold War scenario. But very few spy novels do articulate uh, the ideologies uh, that they are allegedly motiv- uh, motivated by. Um, and the classic example of this, as of almost everything else that's good about spy novels, is uh, the spy who came from the coal. Um, and there's a most wonderful scene in it where uh, Limas, who is the extremely apolitical, uh, disillusioned British agent, uh, the agent of the circus being run by Smiling in an early appearance, um, he, he has penetrated, or has he, <laughs> the uh, German, the East German Secret Service, the Abteilung, and he is being interrogated by Fiedler, who is their most intelligent and interesting uh, officer. And Fiedler has tried to ask him about you know, his politics and the ideology that his uh, Secret Service is motivated by. He must just can't understand it. And in the end, he says, "Well, like, you know, what, what are you talking about? We're not Germans. <laughs> As if only Germans could have any kind of political ideology." And that novel is about the tr- tremendous wastage that a Secret Service can generate through merely pushing pushing information around rather than having any precise political ends. One of the novels we looked at, which dealt kind of interestingly into ideology, was Ian M. Banks's player of games, which is about a man who goes to play a tremendously advanced board game with an alien empire. And the entire extended metaphor is that his morals of his society are playing against the morals of the other society. What's curious about the espionage in this is that the major spy is not the main character. There's this wonderful conceit in which he has a little advanced flying robot which has to get inside a big, um, not advanced flying robot machine to pretend to be rubbish in front of the aliens and it transpires at the end that this tiny robot inside the bigger robot has been basically controlling this guy's entire life. And while that's an interesting critique of the way in which diplomats and spies use an ideology, it was interesting in that the main character doesn't experience this. He's just manipulated by it and so we don't see the moral questions that are involved in that kind of action. Yeah, that sounds really interesting I'd like to read that. It's, but that, that I think is what's most interesting about some of the best spy novels. They do uh, explore or expose um, with a lack of any political certainty. 
um, and, and, and you know, a sort of pointless relativity so that you're only a villain if you're a traitor uh, against your own country, whereas the Spartans are exactly the same yes. thing as each other. So, so you know, it's difficult to identify a clear villain in those uh, circumstances. So one of the ways in which spy fiction broaches close, most closely into speculative or science fiction is its use of technology. Yeah. What's interesting is that doesn't seem to be at all uniform across the genre. Some spy technologies exist simply because Ian Fleming thought they were fun. Yes. Others are there simply to hand wave away a problem. And then there's a third type of technology you might get, which is actually trying to say something important about the use of technology in espionage. What, how do you see this working within the genre? Well, that's a very good question. Um, and there are a number of different answers. I mean, Fleming was, uh, he did have links with the uh, British and American secret services. And actually, some of the gadgets that you get in uh, Bond novels were proposed yes. in reality. So there is a sort of um, spurious magic and glamour that uh, really did obtain, uh, particularly in the Cold War. One of the other aspects of this extreme technological surface that often uh, you know, forms the, the narrative of spy fiction is also to do with ideas of, that we've already spoken about, about uh, masculinity and individuality. Um, Hane, for example, in the 39 Steps, is a mining engineer. And <laughs> it's a brilliant moment where the otherwise super genius villain fails to spot this and locks him in a in a cottage which is full of dynamite so he just uses it to blow up the side of the wall um, so that kind of reinforces the individual but there's also uh, a kind of um, cold, cool, hard surface technology which disguises or, or stands in for, I might say, the, uh, the lack of emotions or articulable, articulatable um, motivation in, um, in the spy. Spy is often portrayed as someone who is kind of inadequate in some ways or bereft of normal human emotions or experiences. They lack human connections. They often do. But then this is, of course, turned around because they don't let emotions get in the yeah, way of their right. work. Right. Uh, this is yeah. most prevalent in Christopher Nolan films in which yeah. the emotion which holds the main character back is almost literally manifested as a woman. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and in one film as well. Uh, so, one of the classic examples is The Day of the Jackal, where the um, Fred Forsyth's novel, where the, the, the shooter, who is an extremely. Who isn't a person, right? No, no, he's, he's just held, completely held back from the reader. But, the, however, we know everything about his gun. There's a. Now breaks of down the gun. into a crutch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it goes on for about three pages. We know far more about his gun than about him. Um, and recently, there has been a. Uh, I just went to a conference with a paper about this the other day. Um, a new, a new uh, and splitting of the genre yet again, uh, and, and the invention of a, a, a very recent uh, popular genre of drone fiction. 
and this is recognisable genre. You can, you know, the pictures of drones on the cover. And I think this is a, you know, moving into yet another um, realm of technological distancing. So, you know, this is about not particularly to spy fiction, but it's about um, uh, a, a technology which allows people to be sitting in a basically an office in Nevada, uh, piloting a drone which drops on villages in Afghanistan from the other side of the world. So, um, yeah, the, the whole fascination of technology, of uh, now um, information technology, is, is seeping into spy fiction. I mean, you, you can't imagine a, a, a series like Twenty Four taking place uh, without, without technology. Yeah. Or, or being able to pull up the schematics, whatever it's called. Not least from its facilitation yeah. of just characters talking to each yes, other. Yeah. Or... Yes, my favourite spy novel. Uh, a novelist is um, now a little bad but very popular among a few people who, who know who they are um, it's called Adam Hall it's a pseudonym he wrote a number of novels uh, from the 1960s to the 1990s about a secret agent called Quilla and you may possibly have heard of a film called The Quilla Memorandum from the 1960s it's uh, got a script by Harold Pinter so it's a bit more well known anyway in one of, Quilla, in one of Adam Hall's Quilla novels this is from the 1980s. Uh, our hero is holed up. He's been betrayed by his own agency, and he's holed up in a hospital in the north of Russia. There is one phone in the hospital, and there's a most brilliant chapter. He's trying to get the nurse to let him use the, this one phone, which is his only chance to link up with his, you know, the person who's directing him, directing the mission. Uh, it's incredibly tense. That couldn't really happen now. Isolation, you'd be, you know, getting borrowing a mobile phone. And... One thing I find quite interesting is that when the genre of hacking emerged as a liter- literary thing with Neuromancer and, to a lesser extent, Snow Crash, is there hasn't been as much crossover as you might think yeah. between espionage and spying, which involves a lot of hacking, and the sort of cyberpunk genre of adventurous hacking for private reasons. So um, Neuromancer is about a heist rather than a cyber war. Why isn't there the crossover one might expect do we think? Or is there crossover I'm not aware of? Uh, if there is, I'm not aware of it either. Uh, interesting question. Um, I think one of the answers might be that is perhaps a, a, a distancing step too far away from the spy novel's roots in action and adventure and the sort of physical, tactile con- connection uh, of the agent with his or her work. Um, it's certainly the case that um, that not so much hacking, but you know, looking things up <laughs> on computers is very common, particularly in uh, film and TV. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps less so. Mostly for product placement reasons. Well, you get those true. wonderful moments when, let me just Google this on my yes, brand new yes. phone. There's a lot of, let me just Google that. Uh, that's very common uh, in, in uh, TV and, and, and film. Less so in the novel. I have just trying to think novels I've read recently and um, that I think makes it a bit too easy <laughs> for the agent. So you don't see quite so much of it in the novel. Also from a realism point of view it transpires occasionally that the sort of facilities that spies usually go into in novels, such as nuclear facilities, are deliberately kept low-tech. Yeah. They use floppy disks and typewriters yeah. for this very reason. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, the, 
there is a, an acknowledgement of, not this is not quite what you're asking, but of the, the kind of data management role of spying. One thing that was often said about the Secret Service is it's not like James Bond, although of course it turns out it's slightly more like James Bond than we had thought. Um, and uh, Stella Remington, who was formerly the head of MI5 and now writes spy novels actually with a female uh, protagonist, uh, and who Stella Remington used to be an archivist before she joined MI5 and she respects that and her, her, one of her secondary characters but a very important character is a kind of archivist in the service and um, those novels recognise the work done uh, by secret services in the dull shifting through information you get that in the Carrie as well yeah. um, Connie in the uh, Tinker Taylor novels is someone who particularly in um, the honourable schoolboy uh, <coughs> the novels represent this bank of free um, computerized information that you just have to sift through and eventually you will get to something in the past that can be activated as uh, useful knowledge. So there have always been female spy characters but they're usually, they're usually the femme fatale Natasha yes. Romanoff type. How has Stella Remington sort of changed the genre? Um, I, she is successful in part because she was head of MI5 mm, and people yeah. want to know what it was like. And she's very open about this that uh, obviously doesn't give away any state secrets but she, she does describe the world of uh, the Secret Service as one which is quite challenging for women so um, Liz Carlyle who's her heroine has always had to put up with people underestimating her and patronising her uh, because she's a woman uh, there are still not all that many other uh, female spies. Uh, Charles Cumming, who's a very successful um, recent spy novelist, uh, has written a number of novels where the, the head of his secret service is a woman, although the main character is a man. Um, I think it's a growing, it's going to be a growing genre. I mean, the, the recent breakout which we loved on the podcast was Agent Carter, but of course that got cancelled after just two short seasons. Uh, and while she's been around for a while, she was very much originally Captain America's girlfriend. Mm. Uh, we, really, we really liked her as a breakout, but yeah. for some reason the network didn't want to take it on, and it's hard to imagine why that was, other than the fact that they didn't think they wanted a female-led mm. series. Yeah, it's that lead, isn't it? I mean, you get plenty of um, you know, competent women in a secondary <laughs> Yes, Judy Dench's M. Yes, Judy Dench's M, or the various women in um, 24... Um, all perfectly competent, often very computer literate, but they're not. They're, they're, it's very difficult, I think, for the heroic spy series or adventure to break away from the idea of male lead. I mean, certainly in its extreme, you've got that really weird trope in some fiction where the lead character is an incompetent male. And yes. This is made funny by the female sidekick being more competent yeah. than him, mm-hmm. which immediately raises the question of why she isn't just in charge. And of course, this is roughly what's going on in Archer. Yeah. Although Archer himself can be quite competent, he's a bit of a screw-up. Yeah, one of the sort of counterbalances to that is in Len Dayton's um, middle period, where he wrote uh, a lot of trilogies, sort of three trilogies, sort of nine novels, and they all have titles like Game, Set and Match and Book, Line and Sinker. And they rather interminably follow the 
um, the relationship of a married couple who turn out both to be agents for um, opposing powers. So Samson, Bernard Samson is a British agent and then it turns out eventually his wife is a uh, Soviet agent. And, they, and she gets turned. And the, the, the idea of betrayal is one of the most common tropes of spy fiction. Uh, it's in the carry as well with Smiley and Anne. Um, the hero is defined by his moral righteousness. Yes. Then the betrayal is the ultimate villain. Yeah, yeah. So quite, quite often there's the idea of um, the relationship between a spy and his or her employers is a kind of seduction or a kind of marriage. So Bond flirts with people and... There's a great bit in one, I can't remember which one it is actually, I think it might be The Press File or Funeral in Berlin, one of Len Dayton's really good standalone 1960s novels where um, the character who is called Harry Palmer in the films but isn't named in the novels um, is you know, being spoken to or being approached by uh, one of the by, you know, high up in the Soviet uh, KGB and He's sort of being seduced, <laughs> and the, the character who is not called Harry Potter but will be there in the film says, oh, I bet you say that to all the great powers, which is <laughs> the sense that there is something to do with human uh, betrayals that is always at work in, in these uh, acts of, of um, identification for a different political regime. So, spy novels are very good at the now, or at least what might be termed the science fiction of the next 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Riddle of the Sands, drone warfare, uh, 24's justification of the war on terror through torture. What do spy novels have to say about the future? Good question. Uh, not much. There are spies in science fiction, but I don't know enough about it to comment on that. I think that spy novels often have a sense of um, an alternative form of history that we don't normally see. So it's not history as... A secret history. Sometimes a secret history, but sometimes a history has no visible cause and effect. You don't think of history as something that you know, is a series of interlinked events that cause each other. That's a simplification of a popular view of history. That's not really how history works. But uh, Spy novels, I think, often address points of stasis in history where nothing is going to move on, where everything is just endlessly repeating itself over and over again. There's that wonderful bit in Kingsman, which is a bit flawed in other places, but there's the wall of newspaper headlines from days they prevented major disasters and the the headlines are of course the most inane things and it's this visual way of making the point that successful espionage and sabotage and so on, you just don't hear about almost by definition. That's right. And even though spy fiction doesn't always perhaps point to uh, an, an imagined future, it nevertheless opens up the possibility of an endless future. And I think this is an interesting distinction between uh, spy fiction and, espion- and uh, uh, detective fiction. So detective novels tend to have single plots which are solved during the course of the novel and then they are over. And even if it's a series, as it nearly always is nowadays, uh, and obviously has been since Conan Doyle, uh, each plot is separate Yes. and is resolved at the end and then it can move on. Not only is the room mysteriously closed, but all the characters exist within one stately home or hotel or even an island in some cases. That's right. And that's why those characters are often... um, 
relocatable in history. So you have those... Uh, the military officer, yes, the heiress. Yes, the... Uh, yes or, or even sort of literally, when Sherlock Holmes becomes yeah. you know, responsible for, for winning you know, World War One, <laughs> And I think, it, I think that continues, where, where he, in the... Uh, in the 1940s, when yes. now Holmes is, becomes a national hero. So he's relocatable. Spies, not quite so much, perhaps. There's a... In, in a spy novel, things are very rarely resolved at the end of the novel, which is why they lend themselves to these very long, open-ended... Um, conspiracies rather than specific cases and, and, and while a carry writes three novels yeah. uh, Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People and all this sort of line and then and Len Dayton um, in the same period writing these endless uh, novels or series of novels which open out into further betrayals further possibilities I suppose that itself is an interesting not political statement but there are political implications to that idea yeah. the idea that the in, if not the people, the institutions, the nations, the states, the governments which make up these stories will exist in perpetuity. Even if yeah. the novel makes no yeah. statements about should, yeah. there's an implication that there's a permanence to them. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and that's also... I mean, that's not true of all spy novels, but in the 1960s, there's a sense that... Novels are addressing things which you thought you knew about, but uh, that couldn't be addressed for a long time. And it's it is the case that a lot of the 1960s spy novels revisit the uh, Second World War, particularly uh, at a time in which the Holocaust has been spoken about and written about more than it had been. So you get uh, Hannah Arendt's Cycling in Jerusalem coming out at the same time. People are writing novels about um, uh, things that happened in concentration camps. Land Aiden's funeral in Berlin is about a concentration camp guard and a prisoner who uh, swap identities. Um, so there's a sort of, well, Freud would call Nachtpräglichkeit uh, in spy fiction, that where, where things, the raft of pressure, where things come to life much later. Uh, and that, after all, is the structure of uh, state secrets, which you know, are, um, can only be read considerably after the, after, after the fact. It's interesting that World War II becomes the touchstone for that, because something we've spoken about before on the podcast is in a variety of different genres, uh, diesel punk, deco punk, alternate history, time travel. World War II is the touchstone moment and then if you've got a futuristic villain you need to immediately paint as a villain you give them Nazi traffic that's how you tell and the usual thing we chalk this up to is that it's just a morally easy conflict that we're definitely the good guys and they're definitely the bad guys and we definitely won would you say that's true of the spy novel or is it slightly more complicated um Spy fiction, like detective fiction, does have its kind of historical um, uh, thread or, or, or kind. Um, so there are spy novels which are set in the past. That's quite common. Yeah. There's a huge number of them, often by American writers actually, that are set in the in the war. Alan first. Um, one of my favourites. Uh, of this kind, which sort of addresses, I think, what you're, you're saying, is a series of novels by Jeremy Duns, who's a, uh, someone writing now, one of my favourite novelists, 
and he he has a, uh, I don't have much to, to tell tell you without giving away too many spoilers. But he has a um, this is this is what I'm about to say is revealed in chapter two of the first novel. So he has a, a hero, an anti-hero, or a narrator, his first person narrator for the first few novels, uh, who. Is the, is the villain? Mm. So he is the double agent. Yeah. Uh, and those novels are set in the they seem to set in the late sixties and seventies. So they deal with uh, what we again thought we knew as history, um, but we see now that one of the most active agents in so they sort of deal they deal with the corners of the British Empire, which are a bit murky, <laughs> which, uh, you know, places like uh, Nigeria, uh, where British influence was not wholly benign and certainly not wholly uh, open. So our hero, our anti-hero, uh, goes through these historical moments, betraying everybody, <laughs> including his own service, uh, and, because he, he has been recruited by Russia uh, a long time ago. So that, that's a kind of sense that history is shifting under you when yeah. you read a novel, but it's not stable. And that there is, you're not being asked to judge in terms of good or bad or, or morality. The person speaking to you is a classic villain, but he is the hero. He's the only person that you have, particularly in the first person uh, novels, to, um, through which you can experience what's going on. I suppose that must play very well into the, while justified, ambiguous actions of the espionage. Yeah. Yeah. So, Espionage and spying involves actions which we usually put under the villainous tropes. Yes. Secrecy, yeah. murder, death, yeah. lying. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But, I mean, it just goes back to something we were talking about earlier. Because it, it's, they're only villainous if someone from the other side is doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> when your guys do, then it's not so bad. Okay. Uh, that should about wrap it up. Uh, Professor Fielding, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome.